today from uh, Philippians, uh, where Paul's continuing his argument uh, about us putting no confidence in anything other than Christ. And particularly today, he's going to talk about putting no confidence in religious observance or your religious flesh. So um, the, before I read the text, I want to kind of get get your mind up. Well, there's nobody sitting over there, so I can turn like this. How's that? I'm going to mess up the camera. Anyway, um, tell you a quick illustration to kind of get you thinking about what we're talking about today, and that's this. So I was sitting back there as we were beginning the service, uh, texting with Ann Long and Kristen Tetterton of our, our uh, administrative staff. And, of course, they wanted to know who was here, so I'm texting all your names to her. And uh, the great thing about that is that it condemned her, condemned Ann. She's like, I feel guilty that I'm not in church. And I'm like, well, that, that's what I'm preaching on today. Um, so in case, <laughs> in case you want to know, the people who are here are the real righteous remnant and because, uh, I mean, who will come to church in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a snowstorm in Richmond, Virginia, right? So uh, only the super righteous. So uh, I always wondered who the super righteous people were in the church. And now we know, right? So um, but this is a great text for us to ex- explore that. And so uh, before I read it, let me pray and we'll jump in. Lord, thanks today for loving us. Uh, I just was so encouraged by uh, Emily's words uh, that the snow reminds us of the purity uh, that we have in Jesus Christ and that uh, uh, without uh, earning or deserving anything, you have cleaned us up. You have made us as white as snow. And so, Lord, uh, we're grateful for that today. Help us to rest in that and help us to A delight in that today, we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, So, Chris, you can you can see me okay? Is that good? All right, good. Uh, And also, I just want to say before I read the text, you know, uh, the the deacons who were here this morning, uh, the technical team, the music team, uh, kudos to them. While you may not be super righteous. I am encouraged that you braved the elements uh, to come and to serve today so that we could do what we're doing. So that's good. All right, Philippians 3, verses 4 through 8. This is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, of Benjamin, a, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rub- rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what Paul's going to get at here, what he's been making the argument is, as these folks have come into the Philippian church who have tried to convince them that uh, uh, true believers, true Christians, uh, have to uh, uh, do all these things uh, to prove themselves righteous or to establish their righteousness or to add even to the righteousness that they may have thought that they had in Christ. Paul is going to put the lie to that and, and be very direct and very 
concise in his, his criticism of that. Now, why is this so important? Well, the tendency of human beings is always to defend ourselves, to try to establish in some way uh, our own uh, standing. And what the gospel says is you have no standing. Uh, the only standing that you have is, a, is a, something that someone else has gifted to you. So left to your own devices, even on your best day, your best day, your best efforts require you to repent of them uh, if you're trusting them uh, to gain you any kind of uh, uh, status before God. And one of the things that is, 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 uh, is that kind of helps us understand that is when when you join the church here, we have folks you know come through our inquiries process, fill out uh, uh, membership applications, and the membership applications has t- two questions. Um, one is, are you certain that you would gain uh, heaven? And the other is, what is going to be the basis of your entry into heaven? And sometimes what happens with this, what we're looking for is people, when, and we want to help people be sure of their destiny, sure of their faith, and also we want them to uh, uh, know that the basis of their righteousness is Jesus alone. But sometimes people read that and they think, oh, I'm joining this church uh, and so these elders that are meeting with me want to hear about what I can add to the church or they want to hear about what my gifts are. They want to hear about what I've accomplished in the past and that, that sort of thing. Uh, and so the tendency is to kind of view it like a job interview, you know, where, where you, um, uh, where you tell people how great you are without seeming like you're telling them how great you are. And so, um, uh, but that's that's exactly the temptation that that we have there. But the gospel, the true gospel, uh, takes that away from us. Uh, last week, as we began to look at this text, I got I got a lot of questions from people, which was good because that encouraged me. And the reason why it encouraged me is we we never know that we have preached the gospel as full and as free as the gospel is until people begin to ask the question. Okay, if it's that good, does that mean I can sin all the more, right? And in fact, Paul Paul addresses that, right? He he says, you know, do, you know, um, uh, should I sin? Can we sin so that grace will abound all the more? And he says, may it never be so. But we have to press the scandal of the gospel, God's free grace, Jesus's righteousness to the absolutely unrighteous. Uh, And we must press that all the way to be clear uh, about uh, what the nature of the gospel is. So when he's saying here, put no confidence in anything except Christ, put no glory in anything except Christ, put no hope in anything but Christ, it's exclusive. And so it's not, okay, 80% of my trust is in Christ and 20% of my trust is in my achievements, where I went to school, what I've done, the, the work I've done, the suffering I've done. It must all be on Christ. And that's, that is the, and he's going to use very strong language to help us understand that. And so to get at the people who are coming into the church to, to sow discord and to sow disagreement, he says, listen, you know, if you want to rest on a righteousness of pedigree and achievement, I've got it. I've got it, and I even have it more than these guys who are coming in here and telling you that you need to add. And this 
particular culture, uh, these Jewish uh, Old Testament regulations to their trust in Christ. So the first thing that he says is that he's circumcised on the eighth day. So that's, that's a, a, that, that tells us something about who Paul is, that Paul's family was a very serious, very uh, uh, observant Jewish family living, as we know, in Tarsus, not in the territory there, right, of, of, of Galilee or Judea, but actually far away from that. And so this is a family who is uh, holding on uh, to the Old Testament faith, holding on to the teachings of the Old Testament in a place where they are a severe minority, maybe even oppressed, in a Gentile city, right? So this is so he's making something very clear about where he comes from. And so uh, the fact that he is circumcised on the eighth day, even a Gentile convert to uh, Judaism would not be able to say that. We know, for instance, that Jesus, our Savior, was circumcised on the eighth day. And we had that sweet passage where he's presented there in, in the temple and his parents offer, offered the offering there uh, that, that poor people uh, offered uh, when he came. So, so the fact is, this is something that begins to tell us about Paul's background, about his family, about how he was raised. So even though they are in a, um, a, uh, a Gentile-oriented and Gentile-dominated culture, they are maintaining their faith. So he was circumcised on the eighth day. He says he's a true Israelite. And what he means by that is that in his house, in his family, when they were there in Tarsus, they didn't speak Greek or the uh, the Gentile language. They spoke Aramaic, which was the language that people spoke in the in the synagogue and in uh, this the language that Jesus spoke. So they're maintaining that even though as they live in a, a place that uh, where almost no one would speak that language, he identifies himself as a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why is that important? Now, you may not know much about the tribes. You may not know, know much about how that works. But by the time Paul is writing this, really, there are only two identifiable tribes still floating around. The other, the other uh, tribes have kind of been scattered. But the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah remained there in uh, the southern kingdom in and around uh, Jerusalem. But more than that, and it's important to understand this. Why, when he says that he is a, uh, a a member of the tribe of Benjamin, who's the most famous member of the tribe of Benjamin? Well, the most famous m- member of the tribe of Benjamin was King Saul. What was Paul's name before he was converted? Saul. So, so he was he was named after. Uh, the first king of Israel who was also of the, of the tribe of Benjamin. So you're starting to get a little bit of a sense here of who these people are, right? Uh, you know, you, and I, I hope you can get the humor in this because I think it's funny. You know, when you, uh, in, in the Christian culture in, in America, you often meet uh, people with children and their names are like Jeremiah. Right. Or like uh, uh, Zachariah or names like that, which are great names, awesome names. And you we, we need more biblical names in our church. Jehoshaphat. I've never baptized a baby named Jehoshaphat. I've never. Uh, uh, anyway, 
But that says something, right? When you name your child that, you're saying something that this is a part of, our, of what we believe. This is a part of, of, of who we are. And this, this matters to us. So Saul's family named him Saul before he was changed it to Paul as a witness to who they were, to what they believed, to who they belonged to, right? Um, and so these first, uh, 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 these first four, um, um, characteristics are all things that came from his upbringing, all came from his pedigree, all came from his family. And so there was, there was real pride, uh, and, and in some ways, you know, you can, you can, you can, feel the pride with that family that they are maintaining their Jewishness, their Judaism, and even their identity of a particular tribe within Judaism in a culture that was probably antagonistic to them. So this was, this was embedded in Paul's DNA, and he wants us to see that and to understand that. But not only is that a part of his pedigree, not only is that a part of his family, but look at, look at what else is true of him. Of his, he took what his family gave him and went even further. He's a Pharisee. Now, we hear that language. You know, if somebody comes up to you and says, Joe Brown, you're a real Pharisee. We're going to be like, that is, you know, Steve must not like Joe. It must be that we see that as an insult. But in the first century, the Pharisees were the, were the leaders. They were the, the people that were all sold out for their faith, that they were rigorous in their application of all 600 plus laws and regulations from the Old Testament. They were the, they were the trendsetters, the, the pace setters uh, in the synagogues, right? Uh, and so not only does Paul have this pedigree, but he achieves in his own life and in his own, the way he's lead, leading his life, he chooses the way of the Pharisee. He chooses the way of being super rigorous about uh, the application of this into his own life. Uh, and then, and that's manifest also by the fact that not only does he argue against and debate against, you know, other sects of Judaism, he persecutes them. Um, he, he was on his way to Damascus to round up Christians and persecute them when Jesus met him on the road and converted him because he was just coming from agreeing with and in, in some ways participating in the mob that martyred uh, Stephen there in Jerusalem, that he was in agreement with that, that he was okay with that, that he viewed Christianity, he viewed the proclamation of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord as something that was so dangerous that you needed to kill those people. And so, there, there could, you know, there's no, uh, you know, it's, it's very black and white with, with, with him on that. And then lastly, he had a strict adherence to the law. So as far as the outward life that he led... He did all that. He wore the right clothes. He ate the right foods. He kept the festivals. He, he kept the feasts. He kept the fasts. He did all of those things that he was supposed to do. And, and, and let me just say that, that those things, uh, outside of, you know, killing Christians, these things were not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. They were good things. Uh, it was a good thing to uh, remain faithful to the Old Testament teachings, right? That was a that was a positive thing. 
But what, when Jesus comes, all of that is turned on its head so that we see the fulfillment of all of those things in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now our faith is manifest, our religion is manifest in a passive reliance upon what Jesus has done. A passive reliance on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's what uh, 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 Paul recognizes as the big shift uh, in his life, right? Now, it's interesting the way he talks about that is Paul was a businessman, right? His, he was a trained tent maker. Uh, if you are a business person, particularly a small business person, you're an entrepreneur, uh, not only do you, and, and you make tents, not only do you know how, and need to know how to purchase the material to make tents and have the skills to use the, to, to make tents and, and the, uh, the tools to make tents, uh, you, you're not making tents just for grins or just for fun. You're making it for profit. He's a businessman, right? He made tents and his family did that to make money, to support themselves. And so what he does here is he uses a business kind of language to help us understand what the change is that he's talking about. Uh, I came across this great quote, right? The central motif that he uses to talk about all this is an accounting metaphor. You see that in verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's, He's talking to us here about profit and loss with assets and liabilities, with credit and debit. And as he talks about all of this, he's going to show how he's moved from one accounting system to another, from an old way of life that reckons certain things to be assets to a new way of life that sees those things in which he once trusted to be only liabilities as he comes to trust no longer in himself but in the righteousness of Christ. So let's think a little bit about how he viewed those imagined and perceived assets as an unconverted man. Because what he's going to see is it's not just now that all of those things that I did to try to achieve my own righteousness are are liabilities, but they are liabilities that plunge you further and further and further and further into debt, further and further and further away from the true gospel. Because any time we put our hope and our trust in something that we achieve or something that is true about our culture or our background or any of those things, we are digging ourselves into a debt and into a hole of uh, unrighteousness. We're placing ourselves further and further in a debt uh, and, and acquiring debt that we that we think, ironically, we are uh, producing assets when, in fact, we're going further and further into debt. It looks like, and our flesh tells us, we're achieving something. But the Holy Spirit of God comes and says, not only are you not achieving something, you're actually offending. One of the things that I have been fascinated about, as I've read over, read recently, is uh, this past week uh, was the uh, one-year anniversary of the helicopter crash that took Kobe Bryant and his daughter, the basketball player for the Los Angeles Lakers, and a number of other people. And I read an article this week about why that, why the, the helicopter crashed. 
And the, the, the reason why the helicopter crashed is because what happens, apparently, I don't know this, I'm not a pilot, that when you fly in, into fog and you can't see, that your uh, inner ear and your sense of things tells you that you're flying on a level uh, 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 plane when in actually you may be bottoming out. So your instruments tell you that, oh, no, you're crashing, but your sense of yourself is, no, no, we're flying just fine. Well, that's what this is like. We have this sense that, you know, well, I'm doing all these things and I'm achieving all these things and my family was this way and, and I've done all this stuff. And so I am just fine when it actually you're crashing and you're going to die. Fortunately, what the gospel does is it catches us up short with that. And Jesus shows us his cross and we see the reality of where righteousness comes from and and we see our need and we entrust ourselves to that. And that's what writes us. So what he what he gets at here is not only then is it a matter of gain versus loss, not only is it a matter of asset versus liability, not only is it a is it a matter of having something and being indebted to something, but it's even worse than that. Because what he says here, what the, the uh, translators write as that he counts uh, all of this, um, uh, not only does he, he count it as loss, but he counts it as rubbish. That is, the word he uses there is not the word for rubbish. It's not the word for garbage. It's the word we use to describe that commodity which farmers spread on their fields in the spring to get their crops to grow. It is the uh, dirtiest, nastiest thing that Paul can think of to say, not only are you misguided, but you're dangerously misguided. You are in deep trouble. And that it is such an important issue to him that uh, he compares it to what we spread on our fields to get um, to get our, our crops to grow. So the question then is, what do you make your boast in? What is it that you're tempted to add to the gospel? Now, most of the people who are within the hearing of my voice would say uh, uh, that if you were to say to them, what, what, is, what is your trust? You would say, well, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. But... But there's a tendency, and this is what the, the problem is in the church in Philippi. It's not that people are deserting the, 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 the gospel whole hog for something else. What they're doing is they're taking Jesus and these Judaizers who are coming and saying, yes, faith in Jesus is fine, but you must add all these other things to it. So, so we, we don't have that kind of thing going on in the same way, right? We don't, we don't have Judaizers in the sense that are saying, look, you know, we're, we're the true believers here because we have this heritage from the Old Testament. But nevertheless, we face temptations as well, right? And we face temptations to say, yes, we're Christians, and because we're Christians, we're like this, and because we're Christians, you know, we, we, what, that, the way that's manifest is in a certain set of things that we do. Now, there's nothing wrong with the things that Christians do. What's wrong is our relationship to it. Now, how can you tell if you are tempted to put your trust in something else? 
Well, I think there are two ways that I use that I think that are helpful to diagnose this about us. When you criticize other people, just in your mind, not with your mouth, right? No, we're, we're, we're mature enough that we don't criticize with our mouths. We keep it to ourselves. That's a joke. Anyway, uh, but when you criticize people, right, what do you criticize them for? Because I think that is a window into our hearts about what we may be trusting in or what we may be afraid that we're not measuring up to that somehow or other we need that to add to the gospel. And so we try to find a pecking order where we put ourselves over these people. Well, at least we're not like that. At least we're not like those people, right? Maybe, maybe you're getting your sense of righteousness today from a sense that you look around you and you see what's happening in, the, in our country and you see what's happening in, in church and you think, well, at least I'm woke. Or maybe you say, well, no, actually, at least I'm unwoke. So that somehow or other what you do is you begin to get some sort of sense of righteousness or a leg up on your brothers and sisters because of something that you think makes you superior to them. So I think that's a window into our hearts, that the, the things that we criticize. I'm sure the Judaizers would have gone around and would have said, and probably even said this about Paul. You know, look at Paul. You know, he, he was such a, a serious uh, Pharisee, but now... He will even eat food that is inappropriate. And he eats it with people who are inappropriate, right? So that's one thing. How do you criticize? And who do you criticize? And on what basis do you criticize them? The second thing that I think is, is probably likely about this is when you are disappointed by things, when, when things that you really had hoped for come to you as a crushing disappointment, that is a window to us of what something that we were counting on to deliver for us something that it probably never could deliver, right? So, so, and that's not every disappointment certainly is like that. But when we are crushed by things that we think we've gotten right, or things that we think um, are 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 the way to be, and they don't work out that way, then we are uh, we must confess that we're we're tempted to uh, put our hope and our trust. And those kinds of things. It's really hard, isn't it? It's really challenging um, for us to uh, uh, do kind of an inventory like this. One of the deacons told me after the first service that I made him uncomfortable and that he was going to sit out the 1030 service. So um, so I think that that's probably accurate for us, right? So, so what, do you really rest day by day in your pedigree, your family, your heritage, maybe your rich history in serving, right? That, you know, you've done all these things or your grasp of true theology that in our, in our tradition, you know, service is not nearly as important as knowing the facts, knowing the theology. That's what we count on. And that's how we differentiate, right? And for a lot of my life, uh, I thought uh, that was uh, uh, that was the way to be. That we had a corner on the truth. You know, it's a small corner. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, but it's our little corner, and we're right, and everybody else is wrong. 
And, and when you're right and everybody else is wrong, you know what? You, even if you're a tiny minority, it, it puffs you up, doesn't it? I believe that Reformed and Presbyterian theology is, is good theology. It's the right theology. But one of the things that can, and, and, and I used to think it was kind of the only theology, and I thought that my job in the world was not to proclaim the gospel, but was to make people to dot their I's and cross their T's. But here's, here's the thing, and, and here's the issue. I, um, I was convicted by this from reading in none other than that great uh, devotional work that our church produces called The Book of Church Order which if you know anything about the Presbyterian Book of Church Order, it is the driest book ever written in the history of books. I mean, it smells like sawdust. It's so dry, right? Just touching it makes you need lotion. So you want me to keep going on this? So anyway, um, there's (laughs) there's a thing. Uh, in the beginning, uh, that's kind of a preliminary principle that says that godliness is founded on truth. Now, I don't know if the guys who wrote that back in the 1700s meant for it to be taken that way, but it convicted me because I know a lot of people, in fact, many, many people, who don't agree on a lot of theology with me, whose lives are richer, more obedient more full of joy than mine. doesn't mean that what I believe is, is not biblical, but my relationship even, when I begin to trust my trust, when I begin to trust my facts, instead of the, the simple person and work of Jesus Christ, I'm in trouble. And I'm off track at that point, right? So do you rest in your performance? Do you never miss a Sunday? I mean, look at you people. You even come to worship in the middle of a pandemic on a snow day. Do you read your Bible? Do you rest in your purity, that you're a good man or a good woman and that you have great morals, right? And here's the thing that's startling about that. Paul doesn't say, and, and what he talks about this, you would think he would come and be like, there, there, you know, let me, let me gently correct you. No, he uses harsh language, as we saw last week, and very direct language here, right? He, he uses that word for rubbish, you know, that's, 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 that's not a polite word that we use in church. What he wants us to understand is that a false sense of security in your own righteousness, your own pedigree, your own culture, your own heritage, your own whatever those things might be, is not just being misguided. It is dangerous. And that what he wants the church at Philippi and what he wants us to do is to beware of that. That. It is a matter of life and death. You know, we live in a day and age where every single issue to me seems like it's a matter of life and death. I must win, or my side must win this argument. It's an existential crisis. Everything seems like it's life or death. The, the future of the church, the, the future of the republic, the, the future of all these things hangs on this argument. 
What Paul wants you to see is there are some things worth dying for, and there are some things worth arguing about, and there are some things worth being very clear and black and white about. And it is the nature of righteousness that only comes through the work of Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. And that's it. And that any other gospel or any other approach other than that is not just misguided, it is deadly, it is devilish, and it will lead to the demise of the church. Not to mention the eternal demise of people who are tempted and fall into that trap. So if we're going to fight, and we're going to argue, let's stick our flag in this ground and say, this right here is what we believe, this right here is what marks us, this right here, as failingly and as weak as we trust it, as we believe it, that's our only hope, that's our only joy, that's our only righteousness, not our own, but what Jesus accomplished for us. And you see, the great thing about that is, Jesus knows that we are tempted to find our own righteousness in other things all the time. We are always tempted to look for something else. Our flesh just yearns to say, ah, I did that. Ah, I, I accomplished that. Ah, would you just look at that? But what we trust in is none of that. And in fact, it would be better for us to have no religious achievements and only a faint trust in Christ than to have a list of religious achievements that we add to what little trust we have in Christ. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like that tax collector I do all the right things. He believes and does all the wrong wrong things. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's our hope. That's the source of justification. And that's worth getting into an argument about. Let me pray. Lord, we uh, come to you and we confess that we are tempted in so many ways to entrust ourselves to so many other things. Would you forgive us? The world, our hearts, is just full of things that would tempt us uh, to trust, to set our identity in, to set our hope in. Would you forgive us? Would you help us? Would you give us your spirit and give us a clear eye to see and to know and to rest in the true gospel? We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's use this uh, confession of sin uh, that's printed uh, in uh, the bulletin uh, and also up on the screens behind me. Those of you uh, in the sanctuary, would you stand with me as we uh, uh, confess our sins together? Uh, Pray with me. Our Father, Father, enlarge our hearts, warm our affections, Open our lips to proclaim the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. There grace removes our burdens and heaps them on your Son, made a transgressor, a curse, and sin for us. 
There the sword of your justice struck the God-man. There your infinite attributes were magnified. An infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due. An infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that we might be all joy. Cast off that we might be brought in. Trodden down as an enemy, that we might be welcomed as a friend. Surrendered to hell's worst, that we might attain heaven's best. Stripped, that we might be clothed. Wounded, that we might be healed. Thirsty, that we might drink. Tormented, that we might be comforted. Made ashamed, that we might inherit glory. Our Savior wept that all tears might be wiped from our eyes, groaned that we might have endless song, endured all pain that we might have unfading health, bore thorns that we might have a crown of glory, bowed his head that we might uplift ours, experienced reproach that we might receive welcome, Closed his eyes in death, that we might gaze on unclouded brightness. Expired, that we might forever live. O Father, you did not spare your only Son, that you might spare us. Go forth, O conquering God, and show us the cross, mighty to subdue, comfort, and save. Believers, hear these words of encouragement. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation.